So the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I've chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. And Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled. When they met him, they asked him, do you come in peace? The reputation of Samuel had gotten around. He's the one that killed King Agag. You got to read the end of chapter 15. And so maybe he's like the Chuck Norris of the area. So I don't know. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> That's kind of weird. What is going on here? Uh, and he's so old school, right? So thanks for laughing a little bit on that one. So next verse there, verse five, Samuel replied, yes, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Elab and thought, man, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, he looks at the heart. And then Jesse called Abinadab, but the Lord, and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, ah, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had Shema pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to them, the Lord has not chosen these. And so he asked Jesse, are are, are these all the sons you have? And then Jesse said this, they're still the youngest, but he's out tending the sheep. And so Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he, he sent and brought him in and he was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. And then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He's the one. And so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, just so thankful for, um, yeah, your word and the joy that your word is, as well as sometimes the convicting power of your word. And so, God, I just pray that you once again, by your spirit, help us to understand, to see what you have for us here, Lord. And not just to understand and see, but Lord, uh, as you call us to obey, may you empower us for that obedience. And so, Lord, we, uh, Lord, we just love you and we There's a lot that's kind of going on in our nation. Just pray for those that are in Texas, God. All uh, the damage and all the stuff that's going on with the flooding there, Lord. Like sometimes we just cannot imagine the heartache, the pain, the difficulty that's happening there. And I just pray, God, you would just help them and empower the churches that are in that community to step in and bring the help that people need. We love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 2, you will see in there, there's a, um, there's a song, there's a, there's a prayer that Hannah, who's the, who's the mom of Samuel, has written. And if you read that 
kind of poem or song there, it sort of sets the agenda for actually the first Samuel and second Samuel. And in that you see this little verse in verse seven of chapter two. And it says this, the Lord sends poverty and wealth and the Lord humbles and he exalts. The Lord humbles and he exalts. And so what we see with chapter 16, when it's kind of set aside chapter 15 is this, is that that God is in the business of humbling Saul because he tried to exalt himself above God. And so God is now humbling Saul. And in the parallel fashion, now God is exalting David. And so you see this running parallel all the way to the end of chapter of 1 Samuel, where, where God is humbling Saul. And at the same time, God is then therefore exalting David. And so this chapter 16 kind of gets us into that place where we get introduced into David and it's the beginning of the exalting of David to become the next king over Israel. And so just as a catch up, God has rejected King Saul in chapter 15. Samuel is mourning over this. He's weeping over this. We see in verse one of chapter 16 where God comes to Samuel and basically says, okay, we're done. Like the mourning, the sadness, the crying, we're done. All right, I've got a new plan I've got a new vision and I've actually got one that's in the family of Jesse that I'm going to anoint as the king of Israel. So I need you to get up and head to Bethlehem and I'm gonna show you which one you're to anoint. And so we saw in there that Samuel's a little freaked out about doing that because if Samuel, if Saul finds out about this, it's, it's, it's kind of like treason, he'll have him killed. And so God says, okay, then just bring a heifer, bring a cow and say, hey, we're gonna sacrifice, which is not telling a lie, it's telling the truth, he's going to sacrifice, but there's a lot more that's going to go on there. And so Samuel does what God says. He lands in Bethlehem. Jesse brings his sons, and, and like the writer doesn't tell us that Jesse knows something's going on, but, but he's kind of have, has a hint here. Samuel the prophet just doesn't show up like this often in this town. He's also got like a, a horn of oil, like something's getting ready to go down. Jesse doesn't know exactly but something's getting ready to go down. And so he brings all of his, or, or seven of his sons, not all of his sons, he brings seven of them and they get ready for the sacrifice. And then Elab, the oldest, the one that looks really good, one that kind of looks like Saul, is tall, and he has the kingly features. I don't know if he has nice hair or not, but possibly has nice hair. As you can tell, I have hair issues. But he has nice hair, whatever it is. If you were here with us last week, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, then it's not a big deal. But here's, here's what we see here is when, when Samuel sees Elab, what does he say? He's the one. He's got to be the anointed one. He's got to be the next king of Israel because he fits all of the physical features of a king. And then God says this in verse seven, which is kind of a central part of this passage of scripture. But but here's what he says. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have actually rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but this is what the Lord looks at. The Lord looks at the heart. And so in this moment, what, what God is trying to do for Samuel is I don't want you to be fooled again. You were fooled with Saul. You thought just because of his physical appearance that he would make, make a great king. Look, I don't want you to be fooled again. Do not be fooled by the, the appearance of Elab. Even, even though he carries on these, these characteristics that looks like a king, he's not the one 
that I've chosen, I've actually rejected him because I don't look on the things that man looks at. I look to the heart. And it doesn't mean that God has some kind of agenda against good looking people. It doesn't mean that, that God doesn't like, you know, nice appearance or handsome features. We'll see here in just a few minutes that David was a good looking guy. He wasn't like a a creature, right? He's a, a good looking man. He's a handsome guy. But what God is helping us see here is that someone's outward appearance doesn't matter. It doesn't qualify or it doesn't disqualify them from this leadership. It just doesn't matter. God does not give a rip about their outward appearance. It doesn't qualify or disqualify. It just doesn't matter because God cares about the heart. God looks to the heart. Man looks to outward appearance. And so the reality of this is this, is that this is both both good news and bad news, isn't it? Good news in the sense that that we live in a culture that is so saturated and, and kind of forms and pressures you to make sure you value your appearance. Like that's the society we live in. We live in a a culture and a society that always values your looks, values your appearance, values you looking impressive and competent and amazing. That's that's what we're bombarded with every single day. And it it gets in our DNA, whether we realize it or not. Like we, we value it also. And what we see in this passage of scripture, which is good news for us, is that you will never hear God saying, wow, that's an awesome six pack that guy's got on there, right? Or man, he's really well built. I mean, that, that would be really weird hearing God say that, right? But that's not what we see here. God does not value that. God does not care for that. It does not matter to God. He doesn't look at the outward appearance. He looks at the heart. And so in one sense, it's good news, but in another sense, it's bad news, isn't it? Because if we're, Like if all of us are honest, including me, I spend more time being concerned about my outward appearance than I do about my own inward character. As David Brooks says so well, we've said this before, we spend more time kind of, you know, building our resume virtues, right? Our resume virtues are those virtues that look really good on a resume that makes you look really impressive when you're going for a job or whatever it may be, you're trying to get into a school versus building up our eulogy virtues, which are those virtues that people talk about at your funeral. They talk about who you are. And I don't know about you guys, but I find myself, because I live in a culture that's saturated by saying appearance is everything, that I spend more time working on my appearance than I do building my own character. And guys, look, I realize this is a sermon in and of itself. And unfortunately, this is not where I'm landing in this passage because I think there's something else that's more important here than this just passage, but it is pretty important. But here's all I want to say to this is this, is that you got to be aware that this is a, an issue within our culture. And it doesn't mean this. It doesn't mean that you should take 30 minutes. If it takes you 30 minutes to get ready in the morning, then you should spend 35 minutes in the word. I've heard people say that. And it's like, I don't know if you're really getting at the heart of what this pastor is saying. I mean, I'm not saying that's bad. And if you do that, awesome. But, but it's not like a checklist, like a balance type of thing, nor, nor is God, God downplaying the responsibility that we have as people to care for our bodies. 
Like our bodies, as we see in the New Testament, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been stewards of this bodies. We've been given this physical body. And this is how we work and do our effort and do our jobs and, and ways that we can bring glory and honor to God. So if, I, if I'm not responsible for my physical body, then, I'm, then in one sense, I'm kind of being a detriment to the work that I can do in this earth. So I have a responsibility to eat well, to exercise, all this. It's, it's important. But we live in a culture that values and praises that above all things. And all I want us to do with this, right? I, I know you probably want more, but this is all I want to give to you today. All I want us to do with this is that we've got to acknowledge its influence. You can't, you can't stick your head in the sand and think, oh, it doesn't bother me. It doesn't influence me. I'm, you know, I'm, you know that's not a big, yes, you live in a culture that ingrains this in you. And so what I want to do is I want to be a people and I want to be an individual that cries out to the Lord and do something in me that has lasting value, that I would be empowered by your grace to build and cultivate the eulogy virtues versus building and cultivating primarily the resume virtues. Are you following me? And look, this is not a modern problem, right? Samuel struggles with the same thing. The way he determines whether someone's going to be a king or not is how they look. If they look impressive, if they're tall, if they look well-built, people will follow him. And God says, no, no, that's not, that's not, that doesn't matter. It's insignificant. It's inconsequential. I don't look on the appearance. I look at the heart. And so look what happens here. Look at verse 8. And I know yeah, the Lord may want to do more with you in that, but that's not where our focus is this morning. Verse eight, look what he says here. Then Jesse called Abinadab, all right, and had him pass in front of Samuel. So the second brother in line, so you got, you know, Elah was first and then Abinadab, and Samuel said, well, the Lord is, has not chosen this one either. And then Jesse had, you know, Shema, or nicknamed Shamu, pass by also. And Samuel said, Thanks for the little laughter. Nor has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said, look, the Lord has not chosen any of these. And so he goes and asks Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Or translation, like, is this all you got? Are you Jesse? Am I in Bethlehem? Have I kind of misrouted or whatever and landed in another town that I'm not supposed to be in? You've You've got all your sons, and God says it's going to be a son of Jesse that I'm going to anoint as king, and you've passed all seven of these, and God has rejected all of them. Is there someone else? Are we missing a kid? And then in verse 11, Jesse says this. Oh, yeah, 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 there's the youngest. Oh, yeah, yeah there's, the, there's the runt. That's what literally this translates as. There's the runt of the litter. There's the, the smallest. There's the the one that's so insignificant in the family that he's not even invited to the barbecue, right? That he is so unlikely to be the next king of Israel that they leave him out in the fields. It's almost, this is what's so ironic, that he's so insignificant, it's almost like Samuel has to remind the dad, Jesse, that he's got another boy. Are you following that? It's like, oh, yeah, right. There's the little guy. There's the unlikely one. There's the one that, oh, no way. He's not king material. 
And so Samuel says, all right, go, go get him. So in verse 12, we see, so he sent and had him brought in, and he was, he was ruddy. I love that description, right? I'm going to start using that in the description of my boys. Man, you're ruddy, right? Actually, what that word means, it means, it can mean kind of like he has red hair or kind of a, a red facial complexion, that kind of stuff. It can mean that, but I think what the writer's trying to emphasize, <clears throat> excuse me, Welcome to fall, amen? Uh, what I'm trying to, he's trying to emphasize is this kind of childish look of him. He's not a boy, right? He's not. He's probably in a teenage years, maybe. We're kind of guessing, I'm guessing a little bit. Most commentators don't really know exactly how old he is. So he's not like a, a nine-year-old boy, maybe 16, 17, 18. But his facial features are very boyish. You know, maybe, maybe think Justin Bieber looking, right? I mean, that's really bad. Sorry, but... That's the first thing. Or Ron, right, on Harry Potter. I don't know. Maybe that's not helping either. But the idea is that he's more kind of cute, right? So when you're like 18, 19 years old, the last thing you want to hear from your parents or from someone you're trying to attract is like, oh, you're cute. That's not what you want to hear. That's like, you know, that's my brother. He's eight. He's cute. But I'm, a, I'm handsome, right? I'm a man, whatever. That's, that's what the writer's trying to emphasize here, that he's He's boyish looking. He goes on. Not only is he ruddy, he has fine appearance. Or some of your translations say he has beautiful eyes. And so what, that's kind of weird. But, but what's, what's being said there, and that's why the NIV says fine appearance, is because that he's a good looking guy. So, so the, like if you remember in the Old Testament, Genesis, there's a woman that's called, you know, she has weak eyes. It has nothing to do with her vision. It has everything to do with her facial complexion, how she looks. It's, it's a way of describing someone that's not that attractive. And so by, by saying he has beautiful eyes, that's why the NIV translates fine appearance. He's a, he's a handsome guy. He's a good looking dude. And so, so now you got to, okay, well, what? Didn't, didn't God look at the heart, right? He just said that in verse 7. So what's going on here and describing all these physical features of David? Well, the writer is describing these physical features because he's wanting us to see that the, the description of this man is, is in a way to minimize his likeliness of being a king. They're trying to minimize that, that there is, there's nothing physically that you see in this boy that makes him go, wow, this is a kingly man. Like Saul was tall and stood head above everybody else. So, so he just looked the part. And so the, the writer's wanting us to see that he's the smallest. He's the youngest. He has a boyish figure. He's, nothing in his physical features would make you go, man, this looks like a king. The emphasis is here is that David is irrelevant. His dad doesn't even remember him. Just, I mean, Samuel has to tell his dad, oh, you got another boy. He's irrelevant and he's unfit to be the king. So that when we come to verse 12, guys, this is where we, we lose the surprise. We're not shocked at this. Because whether, you know, whether you're a Christian here or you don't go to church much, or if you do go to church a lot, most of us kind of know the end story. We know the story of David. We know that he becomes the greatest king of the nation of Israel, that he becomes the king that all of the kings are compared to. And ultimately, he's the one that points forward to King Jesus. We, we get the full story. So when we come to verse 12, we're not going, wow. We're going, oh, yeah, yeah, I knew that. 
But what needs to come across when we see in verse 12, then the Lord says, arise and anoint him. He's the one. We need to respond by going, what? David? The youngest? The the runt? The one that has nothing in his physical features that makes him look like a king? There's no like promising, wow, that, that's king material, right? Oh, someday you're gonna rise up and be a king. Look at you, right? There's none of that. He's the most unlikely of the brothers. That's why Jesse, his dad, doesn't even bring him before Samuel. He's the most unlikely of all the brothers, but he's the one that God chooses. Hear that. That's the point of this little narrative. He's the one that is most unlikely, but it is the one that God chooses. And then the narrative ends in verse 13. I'm saying this. So Samuel took the horn of oil. He anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David power. We'll come back to this next week because we'll put, see this put on display in chapter 17 when David takes on Goliath. And what we can understand from verse 13 is that everything that makes David extraordinary, everything that we see in the life of David that is amazing comes back to this verse here. It explains it. How did David do what he did in chapter 17? Because the spirit of the Lord was on him in power. How did he rise up to be one of the greatest kings of the nation of Israel? Is anything that's in David is because the spirit of the Lord was on him in power. And we'll circle back around that in verse uh, next week when we look at chapter 17. But here's where I want to kind of land. Here's where I want to kind of steer our, our thinking. And that's where I, like, I feel like this is what the whole kind of narrative and passage is about. The most unlikely person to be king, the most unlikely of all the brothers is the one that God chooses. And so it's interesting, guys, and I don't, I don't necessarily believe this is just the case in ancient world, but in ancient world, the oldest son is always the one with the power. The oldest son was always the one that got the power. In ancient world, the most beautiful women were always the ones that got the most powerful men. That's how it worked in ancient world. Now, I think we can kind of see the parallels in our common day culture, but ultimately, if you're the oldest son, you got all the power. If you're the oldest son, you got all the prestige. And it's interesting, every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way that reverses the world's values. I'll say it again, this is, this is huge. You gotta you got get this, right? Every place in the Bible where God works, he works in a way that reverses the world's values. So I'm gonna lay out some names. Some of you are gonna be familiar with them, some of you are not. And if you're not familiar with them, it's okay. But I'm gonna just throw out some names for you. So then therefore it's Abel, not Cain. Therefore, it's Isaac, not Ishmael. Therefore, it's Jacob, not Esau. Therefore, it's Moses, not Aaron. Therefore, it's David, not Abinadab, not even Jonathan, the oldest son of Saul. You see this also when it comes to him working with those that are women. He goes after the the unwanted woman, the unsightly woman, the old woman, the barren woman. So it's Sarah, not Hagar. It's Leah, not Rachel. It's Hannah, 
Samuel's mom, not I call her Penny. I think it's Pennonite, whatever it is. You know what I'm saying? But it's a really hard word to say. So I call her Penny. That's what, like, God, thank you. God always, look, look, God always works with the girl nobody wants and the son who is forgotten and most unlikely amongst the brothers. God always works, always works with the girl nobody wants. And the son who's forgotten and the most unlikely of all the brothers. Now, if I'm you, I would be going, okay, what does that mean? Well, it stinks to be the oldest, amen? <laughs> all right. Some of you are going, well, that explains all my problems, right? <laughs> and some of you that are youngest are going, hallelujah, right? <laughs> I'm not very attractive. God's going to use me in amazing ways, Right? <laughs> Oh, no, I, I, I mean, you can kind of work with that if you want to, but I, I, I don't think that's what it means there. I mean, guys, we see this when Jesus rolls on the scene in the New Testament. He talks about the kingdom of God, and it's so upside down compared to our culture. It's so weird. It's where, you know, where God says, look, the last will be first, and the first will be last. If you want to be great in this world, what are you going to do? You're going to be a servant of all. That just seems backwards. That seems really weird. That doesn't seem like what we see in our culture. If you want to find your life, you've got to lose it. Well, that sounds odd, right? But if you want to lose your life, then you go seeking after your life. So what in the world is God helping us see when he says that he, he works in a way that always reverses the world's values? Here's Here's the implication I would say for us based on what we see in this text. And there's probably a ton you can go with, but I'm just going with one. Here's what I'm asking to happen in my own life and what I'm asking to happen in your life. If that's what God values, then I want to value the same thing. If God works in ways that reverses the values of this world, then I want God to do a work in my heart to where I value what God values. I want God to do a work in my heart to where I see the way God sees. So that means this. Here's one big implication for that. That means this. Then therefore, I can be weak. You can be weak. And I know that's not what we want to hear in American Christianity. And I know that's not what we want to hear in American culture. We want to hear we're more than conquerors. Okay, but you got to first recognize your weakness before you're more than conquerors. If you start with more than conquerors, man, you're going to be one messed up individual. Look, we, we live in a society that that presses on all of us in this room to be strong, to be competent, to have it all together, to be impressive, to build your resume virtues. We live in a culture, that's the pressure that all of us live in. All of us feel it. You gotta be somebody. You gotta show your greatness, especially the way social media saturates us. It's not about weakness. It's about strength in social media. You're not posting your weakest days. You're posting your best days, right? Where's that coming from? The pressure that all of us feel in the society. And then you read passages like this from Paul, and honestly, you're going, I don't know what to do with this. 
When he says this, look what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30 says this. If I must boast, I'm going to boast in the things that show my weakness. What does that mean? It goes on and says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, but he said to me, he's talking about Jesus said this because he's wanting this, this thorn, this thing that's kind of like bothersome to him, this, this, this ailment, ailment, whatever it is that's going on in his life. He begged God to get, take it away, heal this, do away with this. But then Jesus comes in and says, look, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Well, what does that mean? My power is made perfect and weakness, he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29, which I think is kind of like, if you want a visual display and illustration of what's going on in this verse, it's, it's what we just read. Chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. He's chosen the unlikely, not the one that we probably would have went to, not Elab. But God chose the weak things of this world, to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one, no one would brag or boast or say, hey, look how awesome I am before God. But that our weakness becomes a, a kind of a backdrop to showing off the beauty and the wonder of Jesus Christ. So once again, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean for me to step in and be weak? If, if I'm in a culture that says, no, you'd be strong, you'd be impressive, you'd be incompetent, and actually God is inviting you to be weak. What does that mean? Well, I don't think it means that you go and just do a horrible job, right? That you show up work 30 minutes late, you sit around, don't do a darn thing, so I'm just trying to be weak today, right? It doesn't mean you get up tomorrow morning, I'm not taking a shower for a week. I'm just trying to be weak, right? I want people to see how dirty I am. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what God is after here. And honestly, guys, look, I feel like the Lord's still kind of forming this in my own life, and I don't have full answers here. But here's what I would say to you. So, so think about this. David writes Psalm 23. Sometime, we don't know exactly when, sometime after this anointing as the next king of Israel, before he dies. Somewhere in between there, he writes Psalm 23, which means that in the midst of a man who's, who's going to be the most powerful person in the world, that's going to do amazing things, that's going to be really impressive on the outside, right? Somewhere in there, he wrote Psalm 23, and Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. And so if the Lord is my shepherd, then what is David saying he is? A sheep. Have you, ever, have you ever done that game with your kids? Hey, what animal? If you could come back in an animal, what would you be? You ever done that? Anybody done that? Raise your hand if you have. Okay. I guarantee you this. None of your kids or you said, I want to be a sheep. Oh, yeah, that's that. I love sheep. They're impressive, right? No one's stopping on the side of the road and saying, look, there's a sheep. Right? But you'll stop and look at a hawk. You'll stop and look at a fox. Like a fox is pretty awesome looking, right? Sleek and dangerous, right? Because <laughs> sheep are stupid. <laughs> they are. 
They're dumb as rocks. They're foolish. They wander off. And so in some way, even though David was probably the most powerful man eventually in the world, he recognized, wow, I am nothing. I am nothing without God. Actually, I'm not strong. He's strong. I'm weak. I'm not wise. He's wise. I'm foolish. He is my shepherd. And so maybe the mindset that I'm after here is that sometimes we got to think about like, Maybe God is seen most clearly in my life, not when I'm really strong, but when I'm weak. Maybe God is seen most powerful in my life, not at my best, but maybe at my worst. Maybe God is seen most beautiful in my life, not when I've got it all together, but actually when I'm really falling apart. It's, it's so opposite of what we see here. Hide your weakness. Don't own your weakness. And God is going, no, 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 uh-uh, uh-uh. That's who I work through. That's, that's what I value. I'm asking you to step in and be weak. I'm asking you to step in and own your weakness because I'm always reversing what the world values. So for me, all right, I feel like I got to kind of give an illustration to kind of help a little bit with this because I do, I think it's a little ambiguous to some extent for us. Like what does it mean for me to step in and own my weakness or what does it mean for me to, to be weak? Because that's God's inviting me to do that. Like, I, man, I, I need help here. So, all right, I, I'll do my best. This is, this is in my world, right? So it's not in your world, but this is in my world. And I just think you need to do the work here. He's, he's inviting us to boast in our weakness. And we need to figure out what that is because that's what God values, right? He wants to be seen great, not you. That's why he chose David, not Abinadab. He's the most unlikely. And so for me, you know, I, I feel like at times I'm in a line of work where I need to know something about everything that I need to know something about everything and, and not just something, but whatever it is that I need to know about, I need to make sure I'm competent and sure about it because I've got a group of people that are trying to follow sort of this church and sort of me, but not really me, but, but they want a, an individual that seems competent and sure and knows something about everything. And so I need to know something about my political views and where I land and all that kind of stuff. I need to have a view on immigration and what's going on with the immigration stuff. I need to kind of know a little bit about racism, what's happening here, the history of racism. You know, do you know the Protestant church, blah, 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 did all this stuff. You have a, that mindset of that. I need to know something about counseling and psychology and where, where are those mixed, where are those come together. And I need to have a, a confidence and competent view of that. Not only do that, I didn't know, know all about leadership school, right? Because I'm leading a staff. I'm leading an elder body. I'm leading a church body. I need to know something about leadership principles and all that. And I need to seem kind of competent and sure that, so that these guys won't think I'm an idiot and moron and you kind of go somewhere else. Because I've got to be, you know, on it. But I'm entire, and also, I got to know about parenting, right? Like I got to be sort of an, an expert in parenting because I'm trying to teach people about parenting here and, and sort of have some kind of knowledge about what the home life is supposed to be. I need to be incompetent and impressive, right? That's what I feel. That's the pressure in my world. And I'm sure most of you in this room know what I'm talking about. You just put it in a different category. And the... 
The reality is this, and I'm not saying this in some self-deprecating way. I'm just trying to be sober-minded here. The reality is this, I'm a guy with average intelligence. Dude, I had to write an essay to Campbellsville University and convince them that I could pass their classes before they would accept me into school. You're supposed to laugh at that, but nobody laughed, all right? I'm okay now. I'm not like, maybe I'm not okay, man. That's why I need to go counseling more. I don't know. But here's what I do with that. Here's what I, this is what it means for me to, all right, be weak. I ask for help. I ask for help from people that are probably younger than me and probably been in ministry a lot less than I have. I stopped faking it, right? I said, you know, I don't know. I don't know what my political views are. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. I don't know where I'm at with immigration. I don't know about all the counseling, psychology, and all this kind of, I don't know. I I don't know a lot about parenting. I'm just trying, right? I'm just stepping in, doing my best. I don't have, like, I know we're supposed to have massive visions and all this stuff and do this and, you know, lead your staff. And I, I get, I've read a ton of, of books, but sometimes I'm going, I, I don't know. Like, and it doesn't mean that I'm, I'm trying to be lazy, right? It doesn't mean, oh, then I just kind of blow up my inner tube and float down the lazy river. I'm just trying to say, look, if I'm going to step into my weakness, then I need to stop faking it, right? That it's okay for us asking help. It's okay to say, you know what? I don't know. I'm not fully competent in that field. I think... That's what it means to be weak. Because in those moments when we are weak, Jesus shines the brightest. The reason why God is so put on display through David's life is because David was the one that shouldn't have been picked. He was the most unfit one, the unlikely one. He's the smallest, the runt, the one that doesn't look the part but God chose him because he wanted to be big and large in the eyes of the people in Israel. So if I'm gonna value what God values and not what the world values, then one of the implications of this, look, this is just one. I encourage you to go home and, and make some more, but one of them is this, is we, we can be weak. That in a culture where it's saying, be strong, be competent, be impressive, God is saying, no, 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 be weak, be weak. So if you're not a Christian here, guys, look, and I hope you, you hear this like, this, like this is where it begins for you. Like no one comes to Jesus going, I'm strong, <laughs> right? No one, I mean, tell your own story. If you're a Christian here, what's your story? I came to Jesus because I was done. I'm at the end. I'm, I'm, I'm bankrupt. I, I've come to the end of myself. Like, I, I, need, I need help. Like, that's what it means. This is the first step. That's what it means when we sing songs that, that says, God, help me to feel my need. That, that's what it means here. Feel my need for Jesus. You becoming a Christian starts here. I am weak. And I need someone who will be strong for me. And that is Jesus.
So I, you know, I invite you to receive him. Own your weakness, acknowledge your sin, acknowledge your brokenness, acknowledge your inability to do what God commands, acknowledge your inability to be consistent with your own values and your own morality, right? And see your need and feel your need for Jesus. And if you're a Christian here, then my my encouragement for you is, is to do the hard work, all right? of thinking and reflecting upon what does it mean for me to step into my weakness? What does it mean for me to be weak? What does it mean for me to kind of like allow Jesus to shine brighter and allow me to kind of decrease, so to speak, as John, ba- John the Baptist said. And one of the ways that we do this, guys, like, look, look every, every Sunday we, we reflect, we think, we respond in communion. And when we do that, Lord, guys, think about this. The one who's the strongest and the mightiest became weak on our behalf. I mean, we've got it, and we will, as we go through the life of David, we'll make all these connections, but David was a shadow of the real thing. David was pointing to the reality, and the reality is King Jesus, because there was one that came from Bethlehem, right, that also wasn't invited in. He had to spend the night out with the sheep and the animals. There's also one that, that was anointed by the Spirit of God and sent out into the wilderness, right, not to run away from Saul and be hunted by Saul, but to be assaulted by Satan. There was one, yes, that, that not only was forgotten by the Father, but also was forsaken by the Father on the cross. There was one who is the most beautiful, brilliant, gorgeous being ever, and that is Jesus Christ who became unattractive, as Isaiah says in chapter 53, he had no attractiveness by which we should desire him. He became ugly on our behalf so that we who are spiritually ugly in God's eyes can now become beautiful. That is the one we worship. That's the one we receive. That's the one who becomes strong on our behalf when we admit and own our own weakness. And when we come and receive the table today, communion, that's what we're thinking about. This great king, who invites me to be weak so that he can be strong. Let's pray together. Father, I just pray that you would just help bring clarity, Lord, in this. Or sometimes it's, we can talk about it, but we don't know what it looks like when we step out and begin to live this on Monday. And I just I just pray that you'd help us because, Lord, our desire here, my desire here is that Jesus would be the one that shines the brightest. Not a personality, not an individual, not a, not a church name, but that Jesus would shine the brightest. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come forward and take communion, this is how we do it here at Sojourn, we ask those that are followers of Christ to come forward, break a piece of bread off, dip it in wine or juice, whichever your conscience permits. The wine is always marked by twine. But if you're not a Christian, then, then we're just asking you not to take this meal, but you would take the one that this meal points to, Jesus Christ. So when you're ready to take communion, church, you can stand up and come forward.